We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. You're joining us for the second part of our three-part episode with organizational psychologist and best-selling author Adam Grant. If you haven't heard part one, just jump back an episode and get up to speed. Adam was live on stage for our Intelligence Squared event at London's Cadogan Hall recently to talk about his latest book, Hidden Potential, written to help us all unlock that next level of achievement. He was joined on stage by another best-selling author, the economic journalist and FT columnist Tim Harford. Tim's latest book is How to Make the World Add Up. If you're an Intelligent Squared member, we've got something extra for you. Head over to intelligentsquared.com slash membership to gain access to our exclusive members-only part three of the discussion, where Adam and Tim took many more audience questions and the conversation really went to some explorative places. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Now let's rejoin Tim Harford and Adam Grant in conversation. We come back with Tim getting into the deep end of organisational psychology. So, uh, on the subject of what psychologists can teach us, and stepping away from the book for a moment, because uh, we don't want to cover everything in the book, because you all want to buy the book, right? Because it's fantastic. Um, can we talk about the, the state of uh, organisational psychology and uh, sometimes called the replication crisis, uh, various scandals, which we won't go into, uh, it's all just a bit too painful, um, but just this general feeling that Daniel Kahneman, I think, the, the great Nobel Prize winning uh, psychologist, put it quite well recently. He said, 10 years ago when I read a, a surprising finding that was backed by the data, seemed to be backed by the data, I'd believe it. And now when I read a surprising finding that seems to be backed by the data, my instinct is not to believe it. Um, because there have been so many, there have been some alleg- credible allegations of out and out fraud, but also just a lot of pretty sloppy research, a lot of stuff that turned out not to stand up. So what is your feeling about this field that you, you know, you're in the middle of now? So my job is not to have feelings about the field, it's to follow the evidence. And I think there are a couple of things that I've learned from the evidence. The first one is, uh, look, science evolves and our methods should get rigorous over time. So you know, a bunch of my early studies were done with smaller samples than I would use today. 
Um, and part of that was a problem of access, and part of that was um, some flawed assumptions about statistical power that hadn't been um, you know, sort of made as transparent um, and clear as they are now. Um, and so I think this is science progressing, is the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is um, I think that psychologists have taken the brunt of this when all kinds of fields are struggling with replication. Um, there's a team led by Brian Nozick that uh, famously, they tried to replicate over 200 papers in psychology and they found about half of the findings replicated. Well, we have to ask a question about what is the ideal replication rate? I don't expect every finding to replicate. Sometimes you have different people in your studies. Sometimes um, changes over time or across cultures or contexts really matter. Um, and sometimes uh, you, know, you, you, just, you happen to get support for something that's relatively rare and the outlier effect um, was there and then you run a larger version of the study and it wasn't. And we don't want a 100% replication rate um, because then we're not learning, we're not testing surprising ideas ever. Yeah. Uh, we're just confirming our intuition. Um, so Brian's team recently, uh, they did replications in cancer biology research and found failed replications over 40%. And so even the hard sciences have this problem, and there are all kinds of reasons why you know, human bodies would respond differently to different drugs at different times. Um, so I think we need, to, we need to temper our expectations of science. We want science to get better, um, but I think what we want to know is that probabilistically, when you do a series of studies, um, that's more likely to approximate the truth than whatever your intuition is. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I would say about this is I had a, a debate with Danny Kahneman about this. Um, we did a rethinking podcast a couple years ago, and I was troubled by his statement that he doesn't believe a counterintuitive finding. Danny introduced us in part to confirmation bias, yeah. right? The problem that we all like to support the hypotheses we believe and reject the ones that don't match our assumptions and motivations. And so if you're going to then knee-jerk reject a hypothesis because it doesn't sound true to you, you're being a bad scientist. And you, know, you don't want to have that debate with a Nobel laureate because you're not going to win. <laughs> and Danny convinced me that my thinking about this was incomplete and that there's a difference between what I've now come to think of as um, extremely counterintuitive findings and non-intuitive findings. Um, I think there are a lot of cute findings in psychology where there's like a tiny thing you do and then it changes your life. Like, we should be skeptical about that. That is counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what is likely to be true. Non-intuitive is what, much more of what we were talking about earlier. I read the study, I never would have thought of that. And then as we unpack the mechanisms and look at the data, that makes sense to me now. And I think that, that's something we should still aspire to do. Yeah. What do you make of all this? I feel that we need to do a lot of thinking about the structures involved, the incentives, and uh, just the way that the data infrastructure, in a way, that the, 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 the process of, of funding research that's going to be big enough to make any sense, the, the support for sharing data, and, and you're right, it's not just social psychology. I mean, psychology has, has taken the brunt of this, but um, talking to uh, epidemiologists, they're worried that basically all, basically all the medical trials are too small. And they're too small because they have various um, very high standards, and we like high standards, but the very high standards make the trials incredibly expensive to run. And if the trials are very expensive to run, yep. you run the smallest possible trial that you could. Yeah. And there are ways to, to patch that up. You go, well, you know, we'll do a meta-analysis, we'll put together a bunch of trials, but that's not as useful as just doing the first trial really well. Um, and I feel, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this recently, but I, I feel that there, is, there are some amazing things we could be doing with the right kind of data infrastructure, the right sharing of tools, the right transparency, uh, that could just lead 
scientific progress ahead in leaps and bounds. And at the moment, we're still fumbling towards that uh, much more slowly than I would like. I, I think you're spot on there. And it's, I, I think one other thing we should add to the table is the questions we really care about, it's hard to track people long enough yeah. to know what the lasting effects are. I, I read a synthesis of research recently. We don't even know if dental floss is useful. <laughs> like, like ex, four out of five dentists tell you to floss your teeth. The empirical evidence is not, it's not conclusive. Yeah. I still floss my teeth. But I don't know that that's good for me. Yeah. And no one does. Yeah. And we do have, there's amazing, so the National Health Service in the UK has got data on basically every, every interaction you've had with the, with the healthcare system. Every time you went to the doctor, whatever, what you were prescribed, it's all, it's all there in these big data warehouses. You know, did, you, um, did you maybe contract a sexually transmitted infection after you got married? Interesting. <laughs> Did you, did you used to wet the bed when you were 15 years old? It's all there. And the question is how to draw, an unbelievable amount of insight can be drawn, scientific insight can be drawn out of that data. How do you do it while protecting people's privacy? And I, I think we know the answer. If people are nerdy enough, go and read the Ben Goldacre's review for the UK government. There are solutions to this, but they involve an investment in I've used this phrase infrastructure before, just the way you structure the data, the way you protect the data, the rules you have, the norms you have for um, querying that data, um, which enables the science to be done openly. So every time you make a query of that data, every other scientist with permission sees what query you made. So they can, pre oh, you, actually there's a bug in your code. You made a mistake. So we can fix that. At the same time, you don't ever actually get the data you get the answer to your query. So you're protecting people's privacy while at the same time having much better structures for open science. So that's the sort of thing that we, yeah. we could be doing and, and we aren't. And yeah, it's not just about kind of cute social psychology research that is um, you know, possibly not true at all. Um, but um, anyway, there we go. Thank you for answering that question. I realize I got a slightly, slightly off track. I, I had another slightly off-track question. I don't have a track, let's be clear. We can, we can talk about whatever you find interesting. So, so well, I just wanted to get your reflections on, on Sheryl Sandberg, because she's just stepped down from Meta's board. This is amazingly powerful uh, businesswoman, um, all this influence on, on Facebook. Uh, she was kind of worshipped, and then um, Facebook fell out of fashion, and so she fell out of fashion. And, and I, I found her absolutely fascinating from a distance, but you actually wrote a book with her. So I wanted to to ask you, what was that like? What, what did you learn working with Cheryl? Well, actually, la last time I was in the UK for Intelligence Squared, um, Cheryl and I did an Option B event that um, Malala was kind enough to host. And I think, you know, I, I, I do want to say there are huge problems in social media to fix. Um, it has been sobering as uh, we watch what's happened to Twitter as Elon Musk runs it to see how much worse Facebook could be. Um, I will say. Uh, and yes, there are many ways it could be better. Uh, and I've given a lot of input over the years. Uh, and so I think jury is out on how we solve a lot of the problems that social media creates. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that I learned from working with Cheryl is she has the highest standards of anybody I've ever met. So I was used to writing a draft and then doing a couple of revisions and seeking, you know, getting the zero to 10 score and then revising some more based on the advice I got and then I'm done. For Cheryl, um, a chapter would not see the light of day until there were at least 100 revisions. Like that, that was a minimum in most cases. 
And she, she was so determined to get the data right um, and also to be as clear as possible in her communication. And it, it fundamentally transformed me as a writer. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you can see it, Tim, but when I go back and read, there's like a before working with Cheryl and there's an after working with Cheryl. Um, give and take remains my favorite idea I've ever worked on. Um, it was my first book. It's, Oh, thank you for those of you who are familiar with it. Um, it, was, yeah. it was the thing two, I'd spent. Two people loved it. <laughs> no one else has read it. Um, <laughs> no. No, I mean, I, I, I'd chosen it as the one thing I wanted to study, and I, I poured a decade of my research life into it. And so it was like, it was like my baby. Um, I would write that book so differently now. And the post-Cheryl books, Think Again and Hidden Potential, I'm much prouder of the writing. Um, and I think they're far better books because of the way that she raised those standards for me. And I think we should all be lucky to collaborate with someone who, uh, who believes enough in our potential that they're willing to, to say it's not done yet, even when we're ready to turn it in. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, about your writing. You have this story in the book about uh, Harvard saying, well, yeah, you can come to Harvard, but you really need help with your writing because it's bad. Uh, and you, you make it look very easy as a writer. You've, you've got a, you're very, very accessible, it's very easy to follow. Um, it, they, it's definitely you. There are certain turns of phrase that only you would use, that another writer wouldn't, and that's, that's good. There's that, it's not kind of all just smoothed off. Um, so you're a great writer, and you were once a terrible writer, apparently. <laughs> so talk us through that process. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you, I think. <laughs> the remedial classes worked, right? But you never went to the remedial classes. No, I classes. skipped it, because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stomach the idea of taking a class that I was told was for people who spoke English as a seventh language <laughs> and heavily recruited athletes. And the, by the way, the, like, I, got, I got to Harvard already worrying that I was the one mistake who you know, admissions took and I didn't belong there and I wasn't smart enough. And then they fail me on the writing test, which is the first test I take in college. My roommate. Welcome to Harvard. Yeah, no, no, but it gets worse because my roommate was the heavily recruited star quarterback on the American football team, and he passed the writing test. <laughs> like, I, I should drop out. Like, I do not belong here. But uh, one of the pieces of feedback uh, that I got, actually, this was more advice from the writing office, was they said, you really need to work on structure because like, we could not follow your argument. And th this is something that still is a challenge for me, which is, um, I suffer more and more now from what psychologists call the curse of knowledge, which is when you know something, you can't imagine what it's like to not know it. And, and that means it's really hard to explain it to other people who don't understand it. Um, it's why so many, like the worst physics teacher you could have for intro physics would be Einstein. Because he cannot relate to what it's like to not understand relativity. Um, and uh, actually, he was a terrible teacher and had to cancel his classes uh, because he couldn't draw enough students, uh, despite his brilliance, or maybe because of his brilliance and his expertise. Anyway, so um, one of the things I had to learn to do was to actually explain my ideas out loud before I wrote them to somebody who knew nothing about the subject. And it's probably my most useful exercise today still. Yeah. So what advice would you, you give me? I'm 10 books in. I, I'm working on 11th, it's hard. How, how can I become a better writer? How can Tim Harford become a better writer? That's like David Beckham asking how he can become a better footballer. Uh, I dispute the premise, but still, but... <laughs> there's, 
Jeez, uh, I'd have to think more about that to, I think, to do it justice, but if you want an off-the-cuff reaction. Yeah. I think one thing that I would love to see you do is um, stay with your amazing stories longer. I, your story about Keith Jarrett to this day, when I sit down to write a story or to prep a TED Talk, like the Tim Harford standard is what I'm trying to hit. And sometimes it's over too soon for me. Mm -hmm. It's so rich and so interesting. I, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel a little bit of you and I have the same instincts, which is we love the data and the science more. And the story is just a vehicle. But as a reader, I'm less like myself and more like the audience, I think. Yeah. And I, I want you to go into the full narrative more than you do. And you do that beautifully on cautionary tales. And I think you could do more of it on the page. Okay, noted, thank you. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
Now, see, now you have to do it. I'm really, we, have, no. we have a whole room full of people that with, are expecting it. You're a, accountable, Tim. Yeah, no, I'm, no. And, and actually, the process of, of writing the Cautionary Tales podcast, which is very story-driven, has, I think, changed the way I think about, about story. I think another thing, another idea from the book that I want to do more is, uh, is to, to get more advice earlier for more people. There are, there are a couple of people who, who see everything and work over everything. Uh, but I could show, I could show the, the writing to more people at an earlier stage. And Try it at your own risk. Yeah. And I don't, well, and I don't do that because it, it, I feel, because I'm scared, right? I'm, I feel uncomfortable. And how, many, how many successful books will you have written to let go <laughs> of that fear? Yeah, well, but I feel like I don't want to show it to you before it's ready, right? But actually, it's the process of... Of course, I, I do, in fact, want to show it to you before it's ready, because that's why I'm showing it to you. And that's how you get it ready. Yeah. I think. And this links into the... the uh, you've got this lovely story about these, these linguists who are just unbelievably good at learning French and Italian and, and all kinds of obscure languages, many of whom were told... Did you just call French and Italian obscure languages? <laughs> Did anybody else hear that? I would excuse an American for doing that. You have no excuse, my friend. It's not how it sounded in my head, but okay, that, I'm sure that's what I said. Um, you meant, and in addition, obscure languages. Yes, I'm with you. So, so um, and, and many of them are, uh, were just told at school they, they, they were terrible at languages, or I think one of them, their father spoke Spanish at home, uh, was a native speaker of Spanish, and they couldn't learn Spanish, despite that advantage. And, and, and it turns out the secret's all about discomfort. Yeah, I, I actually didn't know where this chapter was going to go, so I, um, I happened to stumble across uh, a polyglot. Uh, this is somebody who speaks at least six languages fluently and can converse proficiently in another five. And I, I just think that's endlessly interesting. How did you learn to do that? Like, did you have a language gene? Were you exposed to a ton of different, um, different languages early on during a critical period? And no, it turns out that this guy, Benny Lewis, could not learn a foreign language in school and only started learning them successfully as an adult. How did that happen? And then I'm like, well, is Benny alone? And no, I find Sarah Maria Hasboon, who had the same problem and, and couldn't learn Spanish despite the fact that her father's Salvadorian. And she grew up her ch in her childhood uh, con un padre hispano hablante, y todavía no puede hablar en español. Um, so, like, how did they learn to do that? Like, and what do they know as adult learners that we can all learn? And it turns out their, their, their core insight is really simple, which is, most of us, when we're taught languages in school, we read them and we write them. And we don't speak them yet because we don't feel comfortable. And we think we've got to master it so we don't embarrass ourselves and sound like idiots. But actually, the way to master it is to speak it. And Sarah Maria told me, she said, she said learning to speak a language without talking day in, day out is kind of like trying to master the piano by reading like, a Schumann biography or trying to become a great basketball player by watching videos of Steph Curry and LeBron James. Not gonna happen. And um, in order to, to get over this hurdle that they faced, they had to not only embrace, but amplify discomfort. So Benny, uh, he's, he's Irish, and he, he sets a goal, he moves to a country, and he says, I wanna be proficient in three months. And his goal is to make 200 mistakes a day when he talks to you. And so he literally will memorize a script in a language he doesn't understand and walk up to strangers and introduce himself and say, hi, I'm Benny, I'm trying to learn a language and I don't speak this language. 
and then see how they respond. And every time he makes a mistake in a script, somebody gives him a tip. And every moment that he makes a mistake, he remembers the lesson better because he had that little pang of, oh, this is awkward. Why am I doing this? And um, I think the better you get at embracing that kind of discomfort, the faster you learn. Yeah. So seek discomfort. I'm going to come back. There's, I think there's an interesting tension or contradiction in the book. But before I ask you Oh, about good. That, We're going to fight about something. Well, no, I don't I've been think... waiting for this. Fight about Wait something. Wait a minute. Tim, Tim, hold on a second. You, you won the national debate championship once upon a time? Yeah, it was 1992. Okay. You, you were like six years old at the time. <laughs> I was 11. Okay. <laughs> but I, I really thought that part of what I was signing up for tonight was a chance to, uh, to test my debate skills against a master. And you're just, you're not challenging me no, enough. I mean, you're agreeing with things I say. What kind of debate champion does that? Okay, I'll, I'll, so hold that thought. I'm gonna to come to you guys. Adam clearly wants your most hostile questions. No, 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 I just, I, I wanna learn from you debating, really. And I wanna have my arguments pressure tested. So what's, what's something you disagreed with in the book? So, so it, it's a, rather than disagreement, a contradiction. So something that, something that, puzzled me, uh, you have this really interesting, I think, compelling argument that in order to learn, you need to seek discomfort. Like these, these polyglots who, go, who just humiliate themselves, who, who are just hungry to make the maximum number of mistakes, and you build on that and explore that. A couple of chapters later in the book, you're talking about the importance of play. And play is not gamification, it's not giving yourself little scores. Play is like really having fun, just kind of messing around and just enjoying yourself. Um, so you're telling us that in order to learn and grow, seek discomfort, and you're also telling us in order to learn and grow, like have fun, like have a great time. So isn't, is that, does that not strike you as somewhat contradictory? Now we're talking, okay. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't see that as a contradiction. I see it as a tension. And you're the first person to raise it, and it bothered me while I was writing the book, and no one who read it pointed it out, and I decided it was just in my head. Mm -hmm. And now I know it isn't, and I'm mad, and I want to go fix it. <laughs> um, but here, here's, here, so I tried to, what I tried to do is I tried to write the resolution of it, and I think where I landed is there, there, there are different kinds of discomfort, and some are beneficial and some are not. Um, the kind of discomfort I think is not beneficial is uh, either burnout or bore out. So you do not want to push yourself to chronic emotional exhaustion uh, where you feel like you have nothing left to give um, and you're just completely drained of your energy. You also don't want to do something that's so monotonous that you can't imagine a reason to get excited about it um, and you're just pushing yourself and, um, and using up all of your self-control. Um, what you do want, I think, is the, <laughs> the more manageable discomfort of, um, of social fear of uh, what are other people gonna think of me? Can I give them this draft? Because they might judge me, they might think I'm stupid, or they might think I'm not as smart as I was on the last book. And then I've either lost it, or I've sold out, or um, I'm on a decline. Um, it's that kind of discomfort that I think helps us, the, the hesitation to try something new, and the hesitation to put our ideas in front of other people. That's what we need to get over, but I don't want you to suffer constantly. Okay. Did I resolve? Maybe. Maybe? Yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe the resolution is simply that you can't be, you can't be uncomfortable all the time, and you've got to have some fun, right? And, but you can also, you can learn to be fun as well. This is the Goldilocks theory of psychology. Yeah. Like everything in moderation. Yeah. Yeah. Everything in moderation, including questions from me. We should have 
questions from uh, from you. I've got a, a couple of questions from the from the internet. Hello, I don't know where the internet is at the moment, but hello, internet. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for sending in your questions. But um, let's take some questions from uh, the room. Maybe if you take your hand up. Um, have we got? We've we've got a. We've, yeah. Okay. So there's this question over there. Very enthusiastic questioner over there. I see a couple of questions here as well. So. Hi, oh, madonna mia. Um, super briefly, three um, advices, tricks that you would give for people that really struggle in finding self-discipline. Okay. I don't great. know, reading the newspaper, I want, I, I put tried every single sort of trick, not happening. Okay, great. Um, can we, there was a question here as well, there was, there was a, another person who had, had their hand up, yep. Hi, um, it's about, uh, I guess your, your talk about perfectionism and your recovery from perfectionism, but then I also think of you on the treadmill trying to get better and better and better, so I wonder how do you balance out that, that habit with An the... Another contradiction. One more question, let's see if there's somebody here, or... Can we, can we get a microphone to, to this person here? It's coming to your right. Oh, it's coming from... Oh, there. You've got microphones coming from both sides. There too. Double threat. Uh, okay. Hi, thank you. Um, in, in a moment, sir, thank you. Just, what was an idea that was canon to your early thinking that you thought was absolutely true that now you've completely dispelled um, and is, you think the opposite of, or perhaps vice versa? Are you asking me to think again? Adam, <laughs> Adam I never thinks anything. Um, okay, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll have a fourth question as well. You can hold them all in your mind, I'm sure. Okay, I'm Antonis from Indonesia. So my question is, uh, your suggestion is like uh, always non-intuitive. Uh, yeah, you do not say like a counterintuitive. It's so counterintuitive for me. Uh, when we uh, should start to like uh, make a progress by like uh, uh, have a strength of like a burden of uh, everyday struggle, like uh, what, what Kobe Bryant said, uh, train more, or like a uh, Michael Pep say, yeah, train every day. It's so obvious, not like a. Hidden or like a thing again things. So when we we need to the newness and when when we need to, like a a strength of burden. Thank you. All right. Okay. So we have discipline, perfectionism. We have rethinking, and then when to make a change. Where do you want to start? Wherever you want to start. Um, okay. Well, let's just go in order. Um, discipline. Uh, I, honestly, I think the most useful book I've read on that is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Uh, if you haven't read it, I've, I've heard more people say it change their ability to exercise self-control than anything else. Uh, I also really liked Charles, du Char Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. Uh, and so rather than giving you three random tips, uh, I think those resources hopefully are more helpful if you don't already know them. Do you, do you view yourself as suffering from a self-discipline problem? Uh, yes, an excess of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what like it takes discipline for me yeah. not to work, yeah. actually, which yeah. is a weird problem. Okay. Maybe we talk about that in a second, but yes. So we had, what else did we have? We had the, we had the Okay, so we had perfectionism. You're not, you're not gonna be a perfectionist, and yet there you are on the treadmill, so. Yeah, so I, I wrote a whole chapter about recovering from perfectionism, and it turns out I'm still in recovery. Um, I, I, find it, I find it really challenging, but I do think there's a difference between aiming for perfect and aiming for better. And so what I've tried to do is I've tried to get more thoughtful about which goals are worth pursuing. And what I discovered on the treadmill is um, a lot of running is really boring. I don't like it. 
And if I have a goal to get a little bit better, that keeps me motivated. Um, I, I, like, I like improvement. That, that for me is intrinsically exciting. And so um, I don't ever expect to hit a, like a result I'm proud of or that could win a race. Um, but I, I like the feeling of progress. Uh, and so I'm trying to anchor on that as opposed to, well, here's a mistake I made and I screwed that up and now it ruined my day because I had a bad workout. Um, Something I used to believe that I thought was canon that I no longer think is true. Uh, I, here's, here's a really core one. Um, okay, th this is embarrassing. Um, you know how like, you can have a, like, an email signature and some people like to have quotes that are inspiring in theirs? Maybe that's just an American thing, but. When I was in college, uh, my email signature for, I think, all four years said, I am a great believer in luck, and I find that the harder I work, the more I have of it. Thomas Jefferson. And I'm embarrassed for multiple reasons. One, Thomas Jefferson never said that, it turns out. <laughs> and I failed to fact check it. Um, I just trusted Ask Jeeves at yep. the time. Um, <laughs> two. I think I carried around, um, first of all, an excessive confidence in the one-to-one the, the -one relationship between effort and results. And I really underappreciated the importance of opportunity and circumstance um, in shaping the returns that you got on hard work. Um, if you were lucky to have a great coach, um, if you were fortunate to be born with a lot of natural talent, right? your hard work was going to lead to different kinds of results. The other thing that I guess I, I found myself really turning upside down is I loved that quote because I thought that hard work was a, a sign of virtue. Like, I equated being a hard worker with a good person. Uh, and I guess like, that, that is the Protestant ethic. Um, it's what Martin Luther brought. Uh, it's what Weber wrote about. I don't believe it anymore. I don't think hard work makes you a good person. I think sometimes, depending on what you're working at, working hard can make you a worse person. Um, because either the ends you're pursuing are harmful, or because um, your work ethic uh, really undermines the way you treat other people. And so uh, I've just abandoned my obsession with hard work altogether. And make you change. Um, yeah. When to make a change. Um, I, my favorite way to think about this is to say, I, I hear this question from my students all the time. There's the, like, how do I know when it's time to take on a new skill or to change jobs or to change careers or to move to new cities? Or, or to quit. I, I wish you got a question coming in from the internet on the importance of quitting. So it's related yes, to Yes, it is. So I worry a lot about a problem that Barry Stahl has called escalation of commitment to a losing course of action. <laughs> this is where you make an initial decision. It does not work out as planned, but instead of rethinking it, you double down. And you Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. I didn't want that conversation to end. And luckily, if you're an Intelligence Squared member, it doesn't have to. The exclusive members-only part three of Adam and Tim's discussion is available right now for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to get all that now. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Thanks for listening.